You're listening to Teach Me Thy Statutes, a production of the Ephesus School Network. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. The company of the angels was amazed when they... Hi, this is Father Aaron Warwick with Jason Evert, and you are listening to the Teach Me Thy Statutes podcast, episode number 23. Today's reading is from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 13 through chapter 9, verse 6. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble thereon, they shall fall and be broken, and they shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, Consult the mediums and the wizards who chirp and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. Surely for this word which they speak there is no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry they will be enraged and will curse their king and their god and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her that was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation, thou hast increased its joy. They shall rejoice before thee as with joy at the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, thou hast broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So, Father, right off the bat, I run into some confusion here in the very first few verses. We heard that the Lord should be our fear and dread and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling, but also that he will become a sanctuary. I think some context would be helpful here. So would you begin by clarifying the opening of this passage? Yeah, during our last episode, we briefly touched on the biblical metaphor of God as Father, and specifically, within the context of the Bible, God as an ancient Near Eastern Father. I think if we don't understand that concept, which runs throughout all Scripture, that we'll start to get confused. And I think we get confused because we read into Scripture ideas and philosophies that we have in modern society about fathers that are entirely different than the biblical understanding of a father. To sort of distill down to what I mean by this, I like to point to a prayer we Orthodox use at the Vespers evening prayer service. It's called the prayer at the bowing of heads 
because it takes place right after the deacon instructs the faithful to bow their heads to the Lord. In that prayer, the priest addresses God as the fearful judge who yet loves mankind. Again, the fearful judge who yet loves mankind. So, Father, what is the significance of that? The significance is that you have to understand the biblical God in that order. He is first and foremost the judge. And you, of course, fear the judge because he holds your fate in his hands. It's the same thing in a courtroom when a judge decides a case. You might think you and your attorney presented the best case a person could present. You might even know that you're innocent, but yet you still fear the judge because on his whim your fate is decided. So there's a fear of respect. So with God, he is again, first and foremost, our judge. He decides our fate, and we respect and fear that. However, we're in luck, so to speak. We're in luck because this judge happens to love mankind. He happens, as we hear elsewhere in Scripture, to desire that all men should be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. So it's not as though we have a bad judge, a vindictive judge, a judge who just can't wait to send us to hell. But he is still our judge, and he will judge precisely according to his laws, and so we better respect his teaching. How then does this relate, Father, to my original question about the Lord being our fear and dread and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling, but also that he will become a sanctuary? I think it relates in the sense that God is the fearful judge who yet loves mankind, so you know you have a fair judge, and a fair judge becomes a sanctuary when you know you should be found not guilty. Of course, we've talked in the past about how none of us are innocent um, in, in Scripture, according to Scripture, but how we may be found not guilty on the day of judgment. Hopefully, we all understand that distinction. So if you are not guilty because you have lived your life by extending the mercy God gave you to others, then this fearful judge the judge who is fair and who loves you, is to you a sanctuary. Think about it again from the perspective of the court of law and some of the things we've discussed on uh, episodes of our podcast before. One of the things we mentioned is related to the story of Job and how Satan acts in the role of the DA, the district attorney, or the chief prosecutor trying your case, trying to obtain a guilty verdict against you. If you're in the court of law and you know you're not guilty, but the DA is convinced you're guilty and you feel like the criminal justice system has been stacked against you, then you will find a fair judge who desires for people to be saved to be a sanctuary, a relief, a blessing, because he's going to actually treat you fairly even though you haven't been up to that point. On the other hand, if, as was the case in this passage of Isaiah, you are of the two houses of Israel who have rejected God's law and spurned his commandments— then this same fair judge has no choice but to condemn you. His law has become your stumbling block and a rock of offense. So I would just conclude this part by highlighting that the same God, for the same reason, could be either a sanctuary or a stumbling block. It all depends on how we react to him. It's up to us. God is not inconsistent. He's not changing. He lays out the law of his land, and we can decide whether to follow it or not. We choose whether he will be a stumbling block or a sanctuary. But in either case, he is the fearful judge who yet loves mankind. Thanks, Father. Further in today's passage, when I read chapter 8, verse 19, which says, Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? It reminds me of the Evlogataria, which we sing at Matins each Sunday, and the verse from Luke that says, Why number ye the living among the dead? 
it's the inverse of what we hear in Isaiah. Is there any significance to this, or am I just grasping at straws here, Father? Well, there's a couple things to point out here. First, the passage that you reference in the Evlogataria refers to Jesus specifically, who was raised from the dead. So the Evlogataria is actually quoting the angel at the tomb when the women arrive to anoint Jesus' body. So yes, there is a difference there in the sense that Jesus, although having died, has been resurrected. Now, in addition to that, you have in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 27, the scene where the dead from the Old Testament rose from their tombs after Christ's death, and they appeared to many. And you have the book of Revelation, where clearly the martyrs are raised, like Christ, as firstfruits. In other words, uh, they're raised before the general resurrection. So you have this sense at the end of the New Testament of some activity in heaven among those who had already departed. In other words, uh, teaching that they are, in fact, alive. And in Revelation 5.8, the 24 elders accept the bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the Christians still left on earth. So this is sort of what you're getting at when we talk about prayers being offered to the saints in the Orthodox tradition. But going back to Isaiah, he's more speaking against the kind of stuff today we would see with psychics and palm readers and witchcraft and so forth. My last question, Father. As a lover of choral music, I can't get through this passage without Handel's Messiah running through my mind. And here especially, one of the most well-known choruses, For unto us a child is born, and it continues with, Unto us a son is given. Does this passage allude to the dual nature of Christ, his human and his divine nature? No, I think we have to be careful that we don't read too much into the Bible. In other words, we shouldn't take theological developments that happened over hundreds of years and then assume the Bible was talking about them in the way that we think about them today. Now, keep in mind, I'm not saying by any means uh, that the passage you refer to contradicts the understanding of the two natures of Christ united in the one person. What I am saying is that it's certainly not clear that's what Isaiah's prophecy was doing. In fact, the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, uses the word an angel of great counsel or a messenger of great counsel, and not the term theos, which is God, uh, anywhere in that verse. So all I'm saying here from a very definitive standpoint is that the passage in Isaiah is simply a messianic passage. It's a prophecy of God's Messiah rising up to save God's people. And this is important, I believe, because Isaiah and other prophets go on to speak about this Messiah reconciling not only Israel to God, but also all nations to God and all human beings to one another. And I think today in our churches, we really tend to overlook the importance of that aspect of the Bible, of the gospel, of the work of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, I think we tend to focus more on the intellectual beliefs, the theological beliefs, and we often miss the true practicality and the practical everyday applications of the biblical teachings. Thank you, Father. Today's episode provided an important clarification of how God can be both our fear and dread and yet also become a sanctuary. Father Aaron stressed that we must first recognize God as Father in a biblical context. First and foremost, He is the fearful judge. He alone decides our fate, and we must respect and fear that judgment. And yet, God loves mankind and desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. With this understanding, we know that in God we have a fair judge. If we live our life by extending to others the mercy that God gave to us, he will be our sanctuary because we know that God is just. If, however, we reject God's law and his commandments, 
as a fair judge, he has no choice but to condemn us. Thus, the same God, for the same reason, can either be a sanctuary or a stumbling block. The choice is with us. Thank you for listening to Teach Me Thy Statutes. We hope you tune in next week for a new episode. Alleluia, glory to the O God. Alleluia, 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 glory to the O God.